You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Jerome. Hi, Bob. Great to be here. Great to have you. I appreciate you taking the time. You're very busy. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You are Daron Asimoglu, a very well-known economist and author. You're at MIT. Uh, some years ago, you had a best-selling book called Why Nations Fail, which you co-authored with James Robinson. Uh, now, this year, you've uh, co-authored with a, with a different co-author, Simon Johnson, uh, a book called Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. And that is very relevant to the current uh, debate over the likely consequences of AI, which I'm very interested in. And uh, separate from that, a couple of years ago, uh, you wrote a paper called Harms of AI. I guess that's why you were working on this book. Um, and although the book is most obviously relevant to the question of like impact on jobs, uh, the, the, the paper you wrote uh, is, is much more broad ranging. So maybe we'll have time to get into some of the other. I would love uh, to. AI issues. Um, so let me set up uh, the the part of the conversation about both about your book and the jobs issue uh, this way. Um, a conversation, a kind of debate I've heard more than once since AI became a big topic of conversation is it'll be between somebody who's concerned about the impact on jobs, somebody who's not concerned. Person who's not concerned says, look, Technological change, yes, it always it always eliminates some jobs, but it creates new ones. So eventually they find new jobs, plus it increases productivity, so wages go up. So temporary transitional issues, but in the long run, it's fine. Then the person who is concerned says, but wait, this time is different. You don't understand. With AI, it's like we're, we're kind of getting to the point where there are no new jobs to create. It's, it's like we will have automated everything that humans do by the end of this or something. Now, you are not in either of those camps because you're not accepting the premise of the, the, the person who isn't concerned that so far things have been wonderful when technology, when technological progress has happened, right? So that's, that's where we begin with your analysis. Yeah, well, that, that, is, that is the perfect, perfect start. And, uh, and thanks for all that introduction. And part of the reason why, you know, the subtitle of the book is Our Thousand Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity is because we want to go back to history book because it's interesting and relevant, but also dispel the notion that somehow in the past, things have worked seamlessly. So the way that you set up the problem is really excellent because there is much truth to the optimist's take, which is, in the past, we've had many jobs disappear because of new technologies, especially automation. And in the past, we have also created very new types of jobs and new tasks. After all, a lot of the things that you see people do around you did not exist 80 years ago in terms of occupations or in terms of what we do within occupations, such as you know what you and I are doing, for example, authors and, uh, and, 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 and uh, academics did only a few of the tasks that we spend most of our time on right now. But there's nothing automatic about that. That's where the optimist's case is weakest. So the most optimistic accounts make it sound like, oh, you know, let the market process or the scientific process work. And automatically, eventually, inexorably, things are going to work out because we're going to create new jobs, etc. But if you look at history, first, there is nothing automatic about using technology in a more pro-worker way. And two, there's also nothing automatic about creating any type of sharing of the productivity gains that we get out of new technology. That really depends on institutions, on power issues. And it really depends on what sort of priorities we have in the business world, in the scientific world, in the tech world. Okay. So is it, is it pretty much always the case that in principle, things could work out for the greater good, uh, and and it's a and it's just a question of well governance issues, for example, and, and distribution of uh, power, or or is it sometimes the case that um, 
Well, you you tell me, but let me put it another way. There's two kinds of issues um, th- there can be. There can be uh, companies uh, failing uh, to do things uh, that are uh, even in their own interest, right? Um, and and, and uh, ne- maybe neglecting the welfare people who work for them in the way they make the transition. And then there's companies doing things that are in their interest, their economic interest, but there are these externalities, these social externalities, and, and, and it's the job of government to take care of those. Is, is the biggest problem here in the, in the second category, both historically and now? I would say both are important, but no, I don't think the second one is the main one. Let me give you an example, which I think will help answer your first question of whether you know, we could make everybody better off if we wanted uh-huh. to. But generally, yes, because new technologies expand our capabilities. So at the very least, we can do a little bit better on some dimensions and then find some ways of making sure that nobody is harmed. But it's not how it works. So let me give you the example of the cotton gin. So the cotton gin, as you know, you and many of your uh, listeners would know, completely revolutionized the economy of the U.S. South, which was for more most practical purposes was pretty backward in the uh, in, in, in towards the end of the 18th century. And then it became, uh, you know, the biggest exporter of cotton, which, of course, was the lifeblood of the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine that once you have a cotton gin that enables the cleaning of the southern cotton and then uh, more revenues out of that, that we would be able to use the cotton gin in a way that's good for the landowners and it's good for other workers and it's good for the actual uh, uh, farm workers who are doing the growing of the cotton. But of course, we were in a particular, very peculiar institutional setting, as some economic historians used to call it, southern slavery. And all power, coercive power, was in the hands of the big landowners. Even bigger landowners emerged. They coerced laborers, uh, black laborers, to move further down south and work under even harsher conditions, longer hours. And black workers did not benefit and, in fact, probably became significantly worse off after the cotton plantations came in. And many other people became fabulously wealthy. So that's an example where, in theory, we could have done things that would have benefited everybody. But obviously, the institutional setting had a very simple logic that would not have gone that way. And can I just interrupt and say, were, were the uh, plantation owners doing the economically rational thing, given the fact that this great, great inequality of power allowed them to exploit the workers? I don't mean were they doing the right thing. I just mean were they doing the economically rational thing, however immoral it was. Yeah, I think uh, even on that, there is a debate. But uh, most economic historians would agree with the following limited statement, that from a short-termist point of view, they did something that was very profitable for them. Mm-hmm. Now, from a more middle-range point of view, whether that was good or not, that's a more complex question because uh, the Southern economy was not very innovative. Mm-hmm. So it did not even innovate in other uh, uh, implants and technologies that would be useful for agriculture. And that was partly because it was a repressive environment. It was partly because there was cheap, coarse labor. So the impetus for finding ways of increasing efficiency may have been weaker. So uh, short-term economic logic and long-term economic logic could be different. Mm-hmm. But there are other instances where I would say the question even more complex. So for modern corporations, uh, it may appear that using digital tools, including AI, for automation is economically rational because they are going to reduce Mm -hmm. labor costs. But there may also be pathways where you use these technologies to increase the productivity and the capabilities of your workers, which could also be very profitable. So issues of what you focus on, what you think uh, available technologies are going to be in the near term, and and other uh, priorities of the business elite, including whether they want to sideline labor for negotiation reasons and unionization reasons, all of those are going to come in as well. Mm-hmm. And just to take that example, did you happen to catch wind of, I mean, to take it, the AI example of this thing where uh, Sports Illustrated, it turned out, was producing a lot of AI-generated content and, and ham-handedly they had in the course of creating fake identities for these fake authors, rather than use 
generative AI to create new and unique pictures. They actually bought the pictures from some AI site, so it wasn't hard to establish that they were lying. But 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 uh, their stupidity aside, I, I guess that's a case where presumably th- they were the idea was to eliminate writers' jobs, assuming assuming that their business doesn't mushroom so much that they can just teach the writers how to manage bots, right? That, that they can keep everybody on uh, gainfully employed by turning them into bot managers. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's that's the, the crux of the matter for much more generally than Sports Illustrated. And it's also the crux of the matter when it came to the Hollywood studios versus the Writers Guild of America. The key issue, I mean, there were other issues, but to me, the most important issue and the one that I think is going to uh, be very defining for the next several decades in many knowledge industries is that the WGA put the spotlight on the following question. Who is going to decide whether to use AI tools and under whose control AI tools are going to be? Mm-hmm. So if you put the AI tools purely under the control of the management, there is going to be an impetus. There's going to be a tendency for them to sideline artists and writers and workers. If you introduce worker voice and give some rights to workers about how and whether to use AI tools, it's much more likely that those tools are going to develop in a way that boosts their capability. Mm -hmm. And, you know, generative AI is a nascent technology. Ignore the hype. But it is clear that at some point, it's going to be a very powerful tool for doing better, more creative tasks. But whether we'll take it there or whether we will just exploit it for doing more and more automation or sidelining labor, that's going to be one of the issues of choice. Mm -hmm. And would you say that in this case, it's really not yet entirely clear whether uh, making things work out for the writers would wind up being good for the company, and it's just a question of enlightened capitalism, they're consulting the writers, or whether it's the case that, granted, it will make each company less competitive, and that's why the government needs to step in, or else there there needs to be enough union bargaining power to kind of force all the companies to agree to this restriction. Do we just not know yet? We do not not know that. I don't think there's going to be a uniform answer to that question. Mm -hmm. So I think there are three types of scenarios. And there will be instances where the three types of scenarios will all apply. One scenario, which is the belief of many tech people, is that the most productive use of these technologies will be to automate work. And it's a pity or a good thing from the, depending on your viewpoint, that that will sideline labor, but it's inevitable. That's the right way to use. There will be some industries where that's the case. Today, nobody would think of going back to the times where spinning and weaving are done by hand. Second type of companies and second type of business will be such that actually if we found a way of using these tools to create new tasks, more sophisticated decision-making, more creative work for workers, companies would benefit even more than automation. Mm -hmm. So that's the rare win-win. I think there are cases like that. And then there is the third one, which is an intermediate case where From the point of view of all of the stakeholders, efficiency and effectiveness would be higher if we use the tools in a more pro-worker way. But Mm -hmm. it would also increase wages sufficiently that shareholders don't quite benefit enough. And in that third case, some sort of government action in terms of tax policy or union voice could be very useful. In the second case, it's a coordination issue. Even in that case, the market may get it wrong that I have an option to do something that's a win-win, but I may still end up doing the lose-lose one. That's the non-zero issues come in there. Mm-hmm. Like that. <laughs> okay. Um, the, uh, and in, uh, in explaining why uh, sometimes it's naive to think that a growth in productivity, a technologically driven growth in productivity will work out to the benefit of the workers, you emphasize the distinction between average productivity and marginal productivity. That is to say, uh, between you know the the company, the change in the total, the company's average output per worker, and what 
what the output is going to be from the next worker they hire. That's the marginal. That, that's where it matters. They're making a, a decision about whether to hire another person. Now, that's not uh, intuitively obvious. Can you, uh, with an example, uh, either from history or from uh, the era of AI, kind of explain what you mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's critical. And it's generally when I write books for a broad audience, I try to stay away from jargon. But this was an important one because it's important because it should be obvious to economists, but economists get this wrong. So it's really important to drill down here. And the example that we use in the book is still probably the best one that I have available. So let me try to use that one, which is you can explain it with this story that's often told about, you know, uh, the, 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 the factory of the future, where they say the factory of the future will have two employees, a man and a dog. Uh, <clears throat> the man is there to feed the dog and the dog is there to make sure that the man doesn't touch the equipment. Okay, that's somebody's utopia, somebody's dystopia, fine, whatever it is. But imagine that we're going towards that type of factory. Mm -hmm. Average productivity, meaning total output divided by the one employee, or if you want to add the dog by the two employees, is huge. And the better equipment we put, it's yeah. going to get huger and huger. But the the reason why this is a humorous story is that it emphasizes that the the, the, the person there is completely dispensable. Mm -hmm. You don't need that person and their dog. Mm -hmm. So their contribution to that productivity is minuscule. So as these equipments are getting better and that factory is getting more and more profitable, would it rush out to buy many more people and their dog? No. Mm -hmm. So that's the marginal productivity. The contribution of the human is very little. The factory mm -hmm. can get very productive, but the contribution of the human is going to remain small. If that's the case, there is really very little hope of shared prosperity coming from the labor market. Okay. And I would think that if we're if we're looking for examples shy of that, you know, kind of absurdist example or, or, or intentionally extreme example, it would, a, a, an important dynamic is like, is, uh, can the company increase, is, is, is productivity growing so fast in a sense that it's very hard for the company to increase its total output in a way that more than compensates for that? Because if it does, they will have to hire somebody, right? Yeah, and but that's exactly what automation is. Automation, the substitution of machines or algorithms for tasks previously performed by labor right. is exactly something that creates this wedge between what humans' contribution is and productivity. And we see right. that in the example. So let me go through a historical example that's not as sharp as that uh, you know, uh, utopian, dystopian factory example, uh -huh. but it's the British Industrial Revolution. So the first phase of the British Industrial Revolution, the very first phase, in, uh, involved the mechanization of spinning. Once spinning was mechanized, that increased the amount of yarn available for weavers and reduced the price. Mm -hmm. And that was the kind of automation that wasn't great for spinning workers, but actually weavers benefited a lot. Weaving was done by skilled artisans and weaving wages uh, you know, increased a lot. Uh, and that was like the golden age of weavers. But then, of course, business people said, well, we can also mechanize weaving, and that's going to be very profitable. Mm -hmm. And once they started introducing the power loop mm -hmm. in the early 1800s, now you, what you see is that weaver wages actually plummeted. So profitability of the textile industry increased a lot. Mm -hmm. But weavers uh, you know, suffered mightily both because there were fewer of the independent weavers left and the weaving workers that were put in together with the power looms were getting you know, 30 40% lower wages than what they used to in the putting out system. Yeah. So the first wave of automation created a new kind of job that allowed uh, employers to hire new, very high productivity workers who therefore got high wages. And but that can't be guaranteed. And and to get back to the Sports Illustrated example and to try to convey maybe a little more clearly than I managed to convey it, what I what I kind of meant is like, so uh Sports Illustrated uh greatly increases uh the productivity of the workers it needs to manage the bots. Yes. Uh but 
on the other hand, it doesn't need any new writers. Now, one can imagine a world, this was the point in which they this this so enables them to outcompete the competition that they they start selling, you know, 500 times as many magazines as before uh, or whatever they sell in the digital world. And so they they and these bot managers are high productivity. So not only do they not have to fire anybody after converting all the writers to bot managers, they actually have to hire a couple of bot managers. Absolutely. Now, it can happen. But <laughs> meanwhile, there's all the companies they outcompeted, which presumably exactly one hundred percent. So you're 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 completely on target, and that's exactly what you see in the data. So you see this in the U.S., in France, in the Netherlands, in Spain. So I and several other people have done a series of studies. If you look at companies that uh, automate, for example, the one that you can see most easily in the data is introduce robots. They actually expand their output. They expand their employment. They reduce the labor share because they're using a lot more equipment. Sometimes they even pay higher wages depending on the institutional setting. But then their competitors are shrinking mm -hmm. very rapidly. And so overall industry employment declines. So the fallacy of just looking at a very successful company is that you're not seeing what's going on in the broader ecosystem. So in the US, the best example is, you know, you can say, oh, you look, uh, automation is so great. Amazon has been the, at the forefront of automation and they have become a huge employer uh, expanding their employment. So that shows that it's automation is good for employment. But look at what happened to Amazon competitors, both mom and pop stores and other retailers that have just been wiped out. Yeah. And also there's the question of like, uh, does any given industry face a limit in the amount of value it can create? I mean, there's only so much time you can, you can only read about 16 hours a day, any given yeah. person. So the total number of media consumption that can happen is fixed. Yeah. Whereas you can create more and more technology packed cars and eventually they're giving you massages while you drive and so on. Uh, but most industries aren't like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the issues are more complex because sometimes the industry itself can expand. Sometimes complementary industries can expand. So for example, mm -hmm. again, going to the industrial revolution, you know, in the second phase of the Industrial Revolution, where wages started increasing, you know, one of the key uh, key uh, uh, sectors of the economy was railways and transport. And of course, railways did displace some less efficient ways of transporting goods and people, but they were so much more productive and they were so critical for the rest of the economy that a lot of other industries that were linked to railways started booming. So that mm -hmm. included companies or industries supplying inputs, such as rails, steel, iron, and wood to railways, and also those that dependent on the cheap transport services. So those linkages are going to be important as well. But let me actually point out one thing, which is sort of interesting and important, but somewhat controversial. Uh, you know, all of the discussion that we've had applies when automation and digital technologies increase productivity. So all of the concerns are there. And everybody expects that they have been a big booster of productivity, but you don't see it in the national statistics. The age of the digital age has been one of very slow productivity by historical standards. So if you look at the US economy, for example, the standard measure that economists use for sort of gauging the uh, how much productivity is growing, the total factor productivity measure, you know, it used to grow about two, two and a half percent a year uh, for even sometimes faster in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And that means like, you know, all of your factors of production, all of your companies are becoming like two, two percent, two and a half percent more productive every year. They're producing more, more than two, two and a half percent for the given set of people and equipment. So that number is like 0.5 percent throughout the 80s, 90s, 2000s and even today. So we're really not seeing the benefits of the digital age. Now, some people would say that's because you have a big measurement problem. You're not getting, you're not giving credit for all the amazing things that you get from your cell phone, such as Instagram and TikTok. Okay, fine. Uh, I'm being humorous there. Uh, but, but I think uh, there are limits to how much you can push that measurement story. But the more likely interpretation to me is that we have these amazing tools, but we're not using them well we're not actually getting all the productivity dividends that we should be getting. Mm -hmm. 
And that is also so if you're using 1980 as a kind of demarcation point, that's also the point after which income inequality starts to grow, right? Explode, explode, yes. And these two things are related, presumably. Absolutely, one hundred percent. That's that's the that's the central theme of my book with Simon Johnson. So, um, if you go back to the nineteenth century, in the second half of the nineteenth century, you say the industrial revolution did finally begin to have more broadly positive effects for workers. I mean, one obvious reason springs to mind uh, after the Civil War: it was harder to exploit black workers in the South, at least somewhat harder. But but there were other things going on, right? What what were some of the institutional changes uh, that helped? Well, I think the the British economy is a better place to look at because exactly the slavery issue is not there, and they were at the frontier uh, well into the second half of the nineteenth uh, century. And and there are two uh, sets of really transformative changes happening in the British economy. One of them is about the distribution of power. Who has power? And what are the constraints on how that power is exercised? You know, in the uh, uh, well into 1850s, Britain is dominated by a narrow oligarchy aristocracy. Uh, you know, about 2% of the overall population has the vote or less than 10% of the adult population has the vote. Uh, trade union activity, any type of collective bargaining is heavily prosecuted. There mm -hmm. are all these laws that are so disadvantageous for workers, including things that are called master and servant acts, which make it illegal for a worker to even quit their employer. Mm -hmm. You can be prosecuted. You can go to jail for leaving your employer. So it creates an environment in which workers have no voice, no power. So that starts changing democratization, uh, union recognitions, union started bargaining on regulation of work and wages, masters and servant acts are abolished. So all sorts of changes. But second, as I was trying to hint with the railways versus, uh, you know, the weaving machines, there is more emphasis on using technologies in ways that increase worker productivity and often actually create more meaningful and uh, uh, work or work that includes a lot more human agency and human skill and expertise. And that's really critical for this contribution of workers to the production process, which then translates into higher earnings. Okay. So what happened in, in the second half of the 19th century is related to the thesis of your other book, uh, uh, your earlier book, Why Nations Fail, right? Which is Absolutely. about the importance of kind of broadly inclusive institutions in generating not just inequality, but also in generating aggregate wealth, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and then now coming back to the 1980, you know, inequality is very closely related to these things because when you are just in the business of automation, automation is often going to target very specific groups mm -hmm. of workers. And in in recent history, it has targeted blue collar workers and it has targeted some clerical jobs. So those groups then lose out in the United States. It's actually a remarkable fact that you know, workers who used to do blue-collar jobs, for example, workers without a college degree, four-year college degree, have actually been losing in terms of real earnings, while, you know, workers with postgraduate degrees have been doing very well and increasing their uh, earnings at a very fast pace. So the effects of automation are very uneven. They really fall on the shoulders of, uh, of, of, of some groups of workers, mm -hmm. and that becomes a very potent source of inequality. Okay. And of course, then capital owners gain at the expense of labor as a whole, yet another source of inequality. Okay. I think I may have misspoken and suggested that inclusive uh, institutions are conducive to inequality, but. Yeah, you, you meant equality. Yes, I know. Yeah. It's the opposite. Yeah. Um, so uh, to bring uh, this up to uh, uh, back to the present day. So if. So again, I mean, you're, you're, you're. Part of your point is that that first hypothetical debater I started the conversation with saying, look, the default condition is things work out great. You're saying, no, that's not the default condition. Uh, two things have to happen for things to work out great. One is that uh, corporations need to uh, be, I guess, rationally self-interested, even in the long term. They, they need to be enlightened in the broadest sense, pursue their own interest uh, in an enlightened way in the broadest sense. But also need to be these ancillary institutions. Uh, they can be governmental. They can be non-governmental. They can be non-governmental institutions whose existence is facilitated by the government, like unions. Mm -hmm. um, 
but but these are the things you would hope to see. Absolutely, as- and, and and I think that second one is really important to unpack a little more, and those institutional uh, preconditions mm-hmm. include both how existing gains are shared between capital and worker and different types of workers, and it also has a first-order effect on the direction of technology. Mm-hmm. How we use and develop AI is going to be a, the defining choice of our generation. So, And that is a question that's related to power, it's related to institutions, it's related to ideology. I think all of these issues become really completely supercharged in the presence of AI. Yeah. And I can imagine complications ahead if we if we do want to uh, uh, remedy uh, some of the some of the possible problems generated by AI just in the job market alone. One is you said uh, one thing that matters is distribution of power, uh, and we just established that income inequality has been growing for decades, and hence inequality of power uh, has, in some respects, been growing. There, there's that. There's also the fact that, you know, a thing that has has kind of plagued uh, labor unions generally for for some decades now, which is that a certain amount of work, leave aside automation, uh, it is also outsourceable globally yeah. across international lines. Absolutely. So auto workers, you know, GM says, look, you know, if we pay you more, Japan will, you know, out, out you won't have any job at all. All the Absolutely. cars will be Japanese. Um so, uh, am I right? First of all, in thinking those are two of the big challenges. Absolutely, but you know, labor unions have been in decline in the United States for even longer than 1980. Uh-huh. Some of it is because as an economy gets richer, the composition of spending shifts towards services, and service jobs are generally less unionized than blue collar factory jobs. Mm-hmm. So there's been a tendency towards that. Second, there have been very important political changes. So Reagan's, one of the very first acts was the uh, firing of the prof- professional air traffic controllers who were striking, which was a symbolic event. And uh, at least according to some uh, academic accounts and observers, that was a turning point in making companies bolder in terms of uh, taking a harder harder line against unions that uh, made demands or threatened strikes. So it put another sort of uh, nail in the coffin of, uh, of labor unions as they used to be in the 50s and the 60s. And then globalization and offshoring. So the automation trend is not unrelated to Japanese competition that started in the 70s. Many companies felt we need to cut costs because we are not mm-hmm. competitive against unions mm-hmm. and men sometimes suppress wage growth. But oftentimes it meant just let's get rid of workers uh, by automating certain tasks. And then, you know, you have Chinese competition after the 70s and 80s, even more powerful than Japanese competition. Uh, and offshoring is a very important part of it as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. and. I guess uh, maybe ironically, but uh, you, you said that traditionally service uh, jobs hadn't tended to be unionized. Now there's a certain kind of service job that is, in, in principle, the most readily unionizable. In other words, the kind of thing where you're doing a service for someone in person physically. You may be a custodian, you may be a plumber. You know, services performed not online uh are ones where in principle you know you could you could go on strike and they can't claim that you're going to be out competed by somebody in japan um the uh and i guess some of those kinds of jobs may be the last to succumb to automation if we imagine a world in which all jobs ultimately succumb right like because it, it seems like this round of ai i mean there there was a kind of big scare about what robots would do to the job market. And I don't, well, I guess maybe uh, you, you, you certainly know more than I do about how much impact they've ultimately had, but, it, but it seems like generative AI is going to go not for the factory worker, but going to go fundamentally for the white collar worker, the knowledge worker and so on. Right. Well, I think it's uh, uh, at a high level, you are right, but let me, sort of say a few more things. First of all, 
you're absolutely right. Robots did automate a lot of jobs, but if you look yeah. at them numerically, it's not like huge. It's not like 10% of the US labor force. Probably it's like one to 2% of the US labor force that were automated by robots and associated technologies. I expect generative AI to be equally slow in terms of its automation. So, you know, I, I, I view statements that, you know, within 10 years, 80% of works uh, jobs are going to be automated. Those are complete hype and beyond the possible. Moreover, you also hear very often that generative AI is going to go after knowledge workers. It certainly has that capability. But what we have seen with previous AI technologies, for example, in the late 2010s, is that it goes, it automates some white broadly white color jobs, but at the lower end of the skill distribution. So it's, you know, IT, routine IT jobs mm-hmm. or routine document preparation. And there are very good reasons for that. One is, again, related to hype. Mm-hmm. You know, achievements of some of these large language models are impressive, but still they cannot do most of the things that humans do. Mm-hmm. Second, of course, it is the more powerful managerial workers who decide what is to be automated, and they don't choose the automation of their own jobs. So again, power matters there. Mm-hmm. And then finally, look, most of the jobs that we do are not monolithic. They have a lot of different skills in them. And social skills are very important for many office jobs as well. And there is evidence that uh, companies are demanding more and more social skills. So any job that has a significant element of social skills is going to be very difficult to automate. Now, that's you mean uh, jobs where you interact with customers or you're talking about intra workplace social both skills? Them, or both? both of them. Both of them. So social skills are going to be important for teamwork and they're going to be very important for communicating with customers and helping mm-hmm. customers. And in fact, you know, one model, which again is also, I think, exaggerated, is that you're going to have a lot of back office things automated, and then you're going to have a lot of workers who are like explainers or supervisors mm-hmm. of AI. I think that's also exaggerated, but but it's it, it, it's certainly not crazy to think that there will be growing demand for workers with considerable social skills to be part of the production chain. Although there are people who think, and I've found this credible based on my just fooling around with large language models that things like customer service and tech support could be done before very long by a good bot i mean we're only now open ai only pretty recently introduced the the app where you can just speak to the thing and it speaks back and it's all audio and no text right um and uh but i don't it doesn't seem crazy to me that those jobs could fall uh, fairly fast. Well, they have. I mean, you, we have automated a lot of customer service jobs already. Right. And and not with great success, I would say. You know, uh, a lot of automated customer service. And, you know, I admit your point that it's not using large language models at the moment. So things mm-hmm. might change. But a lot of customer service that's automated is pretty low quality. You mean My, the, I, the text chatbots that, that are so annoying, you just... Yeah, they're annoying them? and, uh, you know, they cannot solve your problem. Right. You have to wait for ex, uh, actual human. And, of course, there are very few of them, so there are very long wait times. Mm-hmm. And some of it is also transferring the cost from the company to the, to the, uh, to the customer. So you might think that self-checkout kiosks are super efficient. But you know what they're doing is that they're actually transferring some of the work from the workers who are helping you check out to the customer himself or herself. Now, mm-hmm. perhaps that's okay because uh, some of that, some of the customers were waiting there, and you might as well get to do the work of bagging their own uh, produce. Right. But but it's not really efficiency gains; it's just reallocating work. And customer service is a very important element of that as well. Yeah. Well, they they might argue that they're saving you time on balance because uh, the cost of replicating the automated things, or or I would say the marginal cost of continuing to use them once you've made the investment is so low, whereas the marginal cost of a worker is always the same amount per hour. That's right. That's so, right. There is, there, the moment we have chatbots that 
are as versatile, as good at problem solving, as flexible, and as empathetic, because some of them actually you need empathy when you are dealing with a customer service, then they can really scale up. But I don't think that's going to be anytime soon. Yeah. So what, uh, well, first of all, are there, are there, is there anything more you want to say about jobs you expect to be the first ones threatened by the current wave of AI? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, routine white collar jobs are going to be the first one. But I, what I would like to say is, you know, you use a sentence about two minutes ago, which implied something that I disagree with. And I don't know whether you meant it or not, but it's it's something that other people claim, which is that we are in this inexorable process in which more and more jobs are going to be automated and there are going to be uh, no important work left for workers, perhaps except for computer designers, software engineers, etc. And I completely reject that. I reject that as a predetermined path. If you use these technologies in the way that I was trying to suggest in this pro-worker way, there could actually be a lot of new jobs that are created. But that's where the element of choice, element of institutions, element of the direction of technology are going to be very, very, very important. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we should resign ourselves to a future in which everything is going to be automated either next year or the year after next, okay, okay, perhaps in 10 years. I think in the process, we could actually create high pay, meaningful jobs. And I think my dream would be not, it's a dream because I don't think that's the most likely path, at least on unless we take action. But my dream would be that you are actually able to create better pay, better quality, more meaningful jobs for workers without college degrees, which this country has not looked after for the last 40 years. Is there an example of how yeah, that I mean, would happen? But, yeah, for, let me give you an example that uh, uh, electricians. Okay, in this country, we have a shortage of electricians. Despite that, it's actually not a great, very well-paid job. And the solution to that is not sending more people to college. The solution to that is actually train better electricians and give them better tools for dealing with increasingly complex and rare problems that are going to get more complex as mm. we electrify the grid, for example. So generative AI-like tools could actually be purposed for that uh, for that task. So we can give electricians a very different type of generative AI tool than ChatGPT, which has domain-specific knowledge based on similar cases and helps them troubleshoot new and more complex problems and uh, enables them to upskill uh, for new things related to the electricity grid or new equipment. And that would help both with the shortage of electricians and would enable electricians to earn more. It would actually boost the capabilities of mid-skill electricians. If you're like the very, very best electrician in the country, you can probably find your way around. But if I'm a middle-of-the-road electrician, then having a tool like that would enable me to do much more uh, meaningful, complex jobs. And that's the kind of premise that I think is possible. It's not where we're going, but if, it, if we were to invest in that, we could actually reverse the trend of great growing inequality, reverse the trend of stagnant wages. So when you say it's not the, where we're going right now, I, I take that to mean that you don't think that even modestly enlightened capitalists will naturally fill that kind of niche. This, this would yeah, require... I, I, think, I think it's hard for me to answer that question because I don't know your definition of modestly enlightened capitalists, uh, but that's not where OpenAI is going, for example. I don't know whether they fit your definition mm -hmm. of modestly enlightened. You know, Sam Altman talks yeah. a good, good talk. And I am uh, I, I'm sure that he has some real concerns when he talks, for example, about regulating AI and making AI used for the betterment of humanity. But that's not where OpenAI is going. That's not where many of the large companies, large tech companies, are going at the moment. Well, I guess in theory they might say that some of the uh, things are opening up to developers and even customers, like the the APIs that allow a company to use its own training data and various things. And they, they just unveiled this thing where you can, to some extent, customize your own bot, although that's not going to turn you into a great electrician. Mm. Uh, but but I guess I, I, I guess they're or uh, they would say that that, uh, you know, they're opening they're opening these tools up for adaptation to to more specific purposes absolutely and and that could that could create uh some of the tools that i'm talking about there mm -hmm. are many other applications we could talk about in uh healthcare in education and so on and so forth but i have two problems with that one is the 
overall business model and priorities of the big tech companies is not really going after those sorts of occupations and increasing productivity of the occupation. They're, you know, if you look at the uh, OpenAI's business business model, it's very similar to Facebook: grow, 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 collect mm-hmm. as much data and dominate the market. And that's not a conducive. Uh, it's not a business model that's conducive to. Let's try to. Uh, develop these domain-specific expertise. Now, perhaps it is possible that somebody could take their tools and build on it. But even there, I am doubtful because, you know, the the genius and in some sense, the failure of these foundation models is that they wanted to sound as human as possible. But it also brings a lot of problems. I think hallucinations are the tip of the iceberg. You know, if you're trying to sound as human as possible on the basis of the current architecture, predict predict the next word or the next string of words in a sequence, that's not going to be a very reliable basis for giving you very specific advice. So I don't think many people would want to be operated by a chat GPT powered uh, surgeon. So, uh, you know, okay, fine, electrician work is perhaps not as high stakes as, as surgery, but it is. it does require very reliable information, very specific domain-specific information. And I think the current architecture may not serve that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now, is there are there any specific government policies you already have in mind uh, that would be useful here? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think the way that... Simon and I sort of frame that is is like a three-pronged approach. And we say that in other historical episodes, when you've had successful uh, redirection of technology and restructuring of the economy, you've had uh, equivalence of these three prongs. First of all, you need to start with the identification of the problem and changing the narrative around it. I think in the case of AI, uh, you know, uh, first of all, being clear about what we want. So, for instance, I would say it's socially desirable and technically feasible to have pro-worker AI or pro-democratic AI rather than the current model and change the narrative. You know, it's not just uh, about, you know, Sam Altman versus Elon Musk, but you need worker voices, civil society workers, regulation. I think that's part of a broader conversation. On the basis of that, then you need to start changing institutions and the distribution of power, building countervailing powers, as people used to say, uh in the in the in the in the mid uh, mid 60s and so on J- james calbraith's term and then mm-hmm. once you have this countervailing powers and a clear eyed set of you know not a consensus but a, a sort of uh, broad discussion on where we might want to go then you start designing specific policies and i think those specific policies would have to a target current distorted parts of the landscape and you try to undo them and then you try to identify places where you know, uh, externalities are not uh, internalized or there are better options and then you try to encourage them. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, in the area of energy, you have to use carbon taxes because that's the clear place where, you know, uh, oil and gas and coal are creating a tremendously clear damage. So you try to tax that to discourage it, but it's not enough. We would not have generated the tremendous advances in solar and uh, wind technology with just carbon taxes. We also needed to put a lot of money in innovation. So the government's support for innovation in renewables was an important part of it. So we have, uh, Simon and I have a series of uh, proposals that go in that direction. For example, uh, get rid of the distortions in the tax system in the US, which favor capital ahead of labor and creates a bias towards automation. Find ways of governments, just like the same way that the government does in the case of renewables or the National Institutes of Health, government funding for more socially beneficial uh, Mm -hmm. technologies. But there are also other things that I think are very interesting to think about. AI is unimaginable without data. And data is going to become more and more important. Mm -hmm. But So that you should think of data as just like labor and capital as a factor of production. Mm -hmm. But we compensate labor, sometimes not enough, but we compensate labor. We compensate capital very well, thank you. But data is out there to be expropriated by large tech companies. So we should find ways of, A, having data providers get some of the gains, but also in the process, encourage higher quality data. So some sort of data ownership, and that's not going to be private ownership because that wouldn't work for a variety of reasons. So some sort of collective data ownership 
maybe necessary. And that's actually a legislative uh, and, and government problem because those kind of markets are not going to emerge by themselves. Yeah. And to show you how far we are from that, right now, the companies aren't even compelled to tell us what data they trained on. There isn't even transparency, right. much less compensate uh, the people who have a claim to having created the data, which itself is going to be a super complicated problem, right? Because you're probably going to need a certain kind of collective bargaining in a sense, because they have a lot of alternative sources, different newspapers they can use, different social media platforms, different Substack newsletters to 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 raise the subject dear to my own heart. Um, so it's going to be so so it's certainly not going to be. Although the uh, energy example is illustrative in terms of principle, that's a much simpler regulatory challenge, right? Absolutely, right. yes. This is a this is a harder one. But then again, I would say in the '60s when people first started understanding the pollution and carbon uh, emissions problem, the energy problem was very challenging. I mean, it took us, you know, 50 years until sufficient investment started going into renewables. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, now, as you know, uh, and as people who listen to this or watch it regularly know, uh, usually we go pretty long time with the public podcast. Uh, and then spend a little time in so-called overtime. That is available only to paid subscribers of the non-zero newsletter, which I encourage everybody to become. Um, but I also thank uh, everybody who's listened this far and uh, for whatever reason uh, isn't going to become a paid subscriber. You can also become an unpaid subscriber and get a certain amount of uh, content. Um, and you have been kind enough Daron to uh, agree to stick around for uh, a little more conversation, which is my good. pleasure. Absolutely, this is so much fun. Good, good. I may keep you here all day if you're not careful. <laughs> um, the the uh, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, you know, uh, ranging from I'm curious about your own use of AI, but also the uh, the the things you raised in that harms paper that go beyond jobs uh, and get to into you know uh, being manipulated by. Uh, uh, by nefarious bots and so on. Um, and uh, there's a lot more to talk about. So thanks, everybody who's listening this far. Uh, we now will head into uh, overtime.